Uh, I had the privilege of preaching at a breakout session of the Cross Conference uh, this last week. And as I prepared that message, I thought, man, I, I really want to preach that to Emmanuel. And so hopefully this will be like, you know, some foods are not good leftover. Uh, other foods just get better the longer they're in the freezer or the longer they're uh, away from the original time of preparation. So hopefully this is one of those. But what I want to speak to you about this morning, uh, the, the topic I was assigned to speak on at the cross conference was LGBTQ plus or Jesus. And so I want to think with you about issues related to uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, uh, and, and those sorts of topics that are really affecting many of you even in the workplace on a daily basis. Certainly we see on the news on a regular basis. Well, and I'll say this, you cannot parent children in this generation without having some fluency and understanding what kind of influences they're coming up against. I want to recommend a couple of books before I jump in uh, that really have helped me. Gender Ideology by Sharon James. Gender Ideology by Sharon James. Uh, the recommendation on the front by Mark Dever, brief and powerful, sets out to explain complicated issues in simple terms and succeeds. We'll try to get that in the bookstore for next week. Gender Ideology by Sharon James, very helpful in just thinking about so much that's going on both at a personal level, a medical level, a cultural level when it comes to transgenderism. And then uh, what does the Bible really teach about homosexuality by Kevin DeYoung? And it's amazing how much misinformation is out there uh, regarding what the Bible says about homosexuality. And uh, I really think this would be a great resource for many of you as you think about these things. I, I can't say enough about as a parent, I've got two uh, college-aged kids, two high school uh, children. There's just no way to possibly parent without active discussions on these kind of things as they're being exposed to all these ideas on a very regular basis. So. Uh, I'm going to begin this morning a little bit differently. I'm going to actually begin with you the same way I began uh, with the college students. We're going to begin with a little poll, okay? So we're going to start with a poll, and the poll is not to find out where you stand. So when you put your hand up, you're not, you're not declaring where you are. You're just saying, I think I understand that. So it's just, it's just sort of a, a gauging our familiarity with this topic. So who, who thinks that if they were asked, what is the L in LGBTQ? What is a lesbian? You could define that. You could define that instantly. Oh, this is encouraging. Good. Okay. Secondly, who could define? Someone says to you, what does it mean to be gay? You got that one. Okay. Someone comes up to you. They put the microphone in your face. What does it mean to bi be bisexual? You understand. You got the answer. Okay. And then they say transgender. Did I detect slightly less hands or no? Okay. And then someone says, what does it mean to be queer? Okay, we just went down by half. Now, some of you may be aware that the LGBTQ has recently not only added Q, but IA. So for intersex, what does intersex mean? You got that one? Okay, now we're at about 50 people. And then the A, it's actually debated what the A stands for. Some would take it to mean uh, asexual. Others would declare it to be ally. So someone says, walks up to you and says, what is asexual? You are, you're there. Okay? Someone walks up to you and says, what is it to be an ally? You got the definition. Okay, so we, we went down and down and down. And now someone walks up to you and they say, do you know what the meaning of the term expressive individualism is? 
Okay, so there's like four philosophy students here <laughs> who've got expressive individualism down. That term expressive individualism is actually where I'm going to spend about half of my time. That, word, that term, expressive individualism, is a lot harder, isn't it? And now I'm going to tell you right now that one of the goals of this talk is to convince you that this unfamiliar term is very important to navigating the world we're living in today. You see, underneath the flourishing of the LGBTQ movement is a worldview that's shared way beyond the LGBTQ movement. And that worldview is expressive individualism. The way of looking at life called expressive individualism, you may not have heard of that, but as Trevin Wax points out, you have heard comments like this before. You do you. You be you. You, you be true to yourself. You follow your heart. You find yourself. You be yourself. Now that is what expressive individualism sounds like on a daily basis. Because expressive individualism is the air we breathe because it's so common to us. If someone says to you, be true to yourself, you just take that as common sense. Doesn't sound radical at all. In fact, it's hard to imagine doing the opposite. Someone comes to you for counsel and the thing you say to them is, now the really important thing in this issue is that you need to not be yourself. And there's, there's part of us that rubs us the wrong way to think about telling someone not to be themselves. And the reason that might rub us the wrong way is because we are all so fluent, so indoctrinated by this all-pervasive idea of expressive individualism. It's the water we swim in every day. Now, let's stop for a minute and think about what's behind this you-do-you philosophy of expressive individualism. There are several features. I'm just going to mention three. First, your true self. Like if you want to know who you are, what's your identity? If you want to know who you are, your true self, it's located in your feelings. It's located in how you feel. I'll give a transgender example. Do you feel like a female even though your biology and your birth certificate says you're a male, then you are one. It's, it's an identity issue based on how you feel. Do you feel attracted to people of the same sex? Then that is what you are. Uh, to, to be gay is, is not a verb. It's not something you do. It's actually a noun. It's something you are when you're looking at life through an expressive individualism lens. Second feature um, is this. The highest goal of expressive individualism is to express yourself. I mean, if, if who you are is what you feel, then the highest goal is to be who you are, to let it all out, to let it all hang out, to, to be who you are and to express yourself. In fact, we live in a culture, Americans love the word freedom. Man, oh man. Coming from another country, I'm going to tell you that right now. Americans, boom, boom, boom. Freedom, it's right there. Ask them to define freedom. No idea. Very, very little idea, usually, about what freedom actually means. And in an expressive individualism kind of mindset, freedom means me being me, me expressing me. There's no higher freedom than me expressing 
the feelings I've got. So in expressive individualism, first two points, real clear, or real, I don't know, you can decide whether it's clear, real simple, I'm hoping. You're defined by your desires. Who you are is what you feel like. And freedom is getting to live out those desires. Freedom is getting to act out on those things that you desire, especially in the sexual realm. Third point. The ultimate authority in who you ought to be is not tradition or religion or custom, not even biology, just the inner you. If any outside authority gets in the way of our self-expression, like a church, a synagogue, a mosque, a government, a family member, a kid at school, that is oppression. If anyone says you should be ashamed of who you are, or says you can't be who you feel you are, that's actually abusive. That's why you hear the word abuse being thrown around so much. Because when you say, hey, I don't think it's right to do that, what a person who's been shaped by expressive individualism is hearing is, it's wrong to be you. You are actually fundamentally wrong. So expressive individualism says that you are what you feel, freedom is expressing what's inside of you, and not letting anything outside of you get in the way, and ultimate authority in the world is me and what I feel is true about me. That's expressive individualism in a nutshell. Anybody with me? You follow me. Okay. Jeremy is with me. Yes. So I'm thrilled by that. Now you may be saying, I thought this talk was supposed to be about LGBTQ issues. It is. But what I'm trying to say is that if you're going to understand the LGBTQ movement, then you need to understand expressive individualism. You see, LGBTQ, they're just like floors of a house. The foundation is something much bigger. Expressive individualism. Let me illustrate. Have you ever noticed that the LGBTQ list is getting longer? Some of us are old enough to remember LGBT. End of story. It stopped there. And then Q was added. Uh, some people thought it meant questioning. Others meant queer. It's kind of settled on queer. And then IA have been more recently added. Uh, intersex and ally. But then you may have noticed it's often written out LGBTQIA+, sort of signaling more is yet to come. There, there's more to come. And, and you might look at that and say, those are just all individual sexual practices or sexual identities that are different than traditional straight sexuality. That's what they are. They're just one's a rose, one's a daffodil, they're making a bouquet. They're each individually different flowers that are different than traditional straight sexuality. That's all they have in common. That would be to miss the point. You see, the LGBTQ movement is much, it's not like a bouquet of flowers, it's much more like the honey mushroom. Like, what's the honey mushroom? Well, the honey mushroom is a mushroom in Malheur National Forest in Oregon. And the honey mushroom is actually quite possible. I have such a science geek at home. My oldest son is like, that's the largest organism on earth. And so, yes, it is. It's the largest organism on earth. My son's sitting in my living room now, and I just called him a geek. I'm sorry, Luke. I love you. <laughs> it, 
Anyway, that mushroom covers over three square miles. But if you were to see the honey mushroom in Malheur National Forest, you would just see one little mushroom over here and another little mushroom over here. You'd see what you thought were two different mushrooms. But actually the entire organism is again three square miles. What looks like many mushrooms is actually one. And the constantly growing letters of the LGBTQIA movement are actually united by something deeper, something underground. They are united by expressive individualism. The idea that the highest goal in life is me expressing myself. The idea is that what I desire defines me, so I am gay. I feel like a man trapped in a woman's body, so I am a man. Where, where is ultimate authority and ultimate identity residing? It's just me. Now, you, you've got to understand how different this is than the biblical and even, I would just say, a traditional way of figuring out who you are. Biblically, Adam shows up and God names him. God says, this is who you are. Eve shows up and, e, and Adam says, this is who you are. The way in which the Bible speaks to us is that we're born and we're given an identity. We are made in the image of God. We are a son or a daughter or a husband or a carpenter or a lawyer. We are given these identities from outside of ourselves, and then the task is to walk faithfully and in a Christ-like way inside of those identities. The expressive individualist reverses that so that the world is basically my blank slate, basically where I'm to paint pictures of myself all day long. In a Reformed theology, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, or by enjoying Him forever. In an, in, in an expressive individualistic idea, it's the chief end of man is to glorify himself forever. Now, why am I stressing this? I'm stressing this because expressive individualism is everywhere, but we tend to focus on the LGBTQ portion of expressive individualism without realizing that we're all pretty hooked on this thing. Biggest problems in Christian marriages? Biggest problems in Christian young people coming of age? They've misconceived the universe. It's about me being true to me. It's about me finding that inner me, that little awesome spark of snowflake awesomeness to put on display in the world. And it, it, it's more pressure than the soul was made to bear. You weren't made to bear the pressure of figuring out who you are and being the ultimate you. You were given a name, given a family. You will be given a job, given a task. And your task is to be faithful and Christ-like in it. Yes, there's some individuality in all this. Praise God. But individuality, rather than being sort of an icing on the cake, has been the center, become the center of the universe. And that's a very devastating place to live. So this constantly growing LGBTQ plus movement is actually part of something deeper, this underground something called expressive individualism. And the idea that the highest goal in life is me expressing me, that if I feel a certain way, that is who I am. And even more dangerous, if I feel that way at eight, that's who I am for life. Or if I feel that way at 20, 
That's who I must now label myself to be. Now, I got to tell you something as a 47-year-old. I have a few different feelings now. And am I ever glad I did not carve out my identity in stone based on how I felt in my 20s. Some of you who knew me in my 20s are very glad that didn't happen as well. Anyway. Now, understanding how the culture is so influenced by the LGBT, sorry, understanding why the culture is so influenced by LGBTQ, I said it wrong twice, let's try one more time. Understanding how the culture is so influenced by expressive individualism is really helpful in understanding why even there, though there are so few LGBTQ people, the movement has become so culturally dominant because they're playing off ideas that everybody agrees on. Most people affirm that a person ought to be who they feel they are. Maybe not everyone feels gay, but everyone around thinks it's right to affirm that you ought to be who you feel yourself to be. And the reason Christian teaching is so offensive is because it comes along and says, well, actually, our default setting is who you feel you ought to be is probably wrong. And you really would be best served by following Jesus. Now, the title I was given for this talk and the title I'll keep for this talk is LGBTQ or Jesus. And the reason the title is an either or question is because the claims of the LGBTQ movement and the claims of Jesus are diametrically opposed. Or to put it another way, the claims of expressive individualism and underneath that lies underneath the LGBTQ movement are diametrically opposed to the claims of Jesus. They are set for a head-on collision. Just listen to the words from Jesus, these words from Jesus, to see if you can feel the collision coming. I think we'll have that on the screen behind me. If we don't, I'll just read them to you. Just listen to the collision between expressive individualism and these words. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. I'm just going to stop and pray for a moment. Lord, I am so hungry to see this teaching go forward with power and to help this church, me, these people I love, to be absolutely faithful unto death and to see thousands saved and actually getting advance, an advancing stride that actually takes ground for your kingdom. Even in this area where so it looks like everything is going away from your word, Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to be poured out on us this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Notice that Jesus sums up what it means to come after Him in three ways. Self-denial, cross-bearing, and following. Those are the three summary statements of what it means to follow Jesus. Self-denial, cross-bearing, and following. Let's look at those a little more closely because those words are not the water we swim in. Those words are not the air we breathe. Those words are countercultural words from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Those words are a life-giving antidote to the poison of expressive individualism. First, what does it mean that we're called to deny ourselves? You ever thought about that? What does it mean to deny yourself? Well, it does not mean deny that you exist. Jesus is not calling us to any kind of mental suicide, to sort of pretend like you're nothing. Not at all. Because the denial Jesus is calling to us is a first step in following. Deny yourself and follow me. So whatever this self-denial means, it's not something that eradicates you. Rather, it's something that helps you embark on a new and better life with Jesus. The other thing that self-denial doesn't mean is it doesn't mean killing all of your passions and killing all of your desires. There's nothing about self-denial that's stoic in nature, just turning down the volume on all of your desires. In fact, if you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, it's all meant to awaken desires and awaken the purest, purest desires for pleasure. I'm the bread of life. I'm the, I'm the living water. I'm the new wine for the soul. And then he goes on, even in this passage, that we're saying, I'm the one you follow if you don't want eternal shame. I'm the one you want to follow if you want to keep your soul. So when we talk about self-denial, we're not talking about eradicating the self. We're not talking about toning down the pleasures and the passions. We're talking about denying every single impulse in us to sin. We're talking about denying our desires to sin. And he says deny yourself because we identify so closely with our sins. We tend to view our sins as us. That's how tightly wound we are to them. And he wants us to put away all sinful ways of finding joy in life. He wants us to put away all sinful impulses, temptations, and desires, and instead, to follow Him. To deny yourself is to flee your own desires for sin so you can follow the Savior. All of us are in a process of repenting out of, out of this kind of expressive individualism that says, whatever's in me, i got to do. No. Whatever is in you that's wanting to contradict Christ's Word needs to be done away with. and needs to be denied. The second thing is that we're called to take up our cross. Or to put it another way, and listen to this carefully, to embrace the shame that comes with following Jesus. To embrace the shame that comes with following Jesus. Now many people talk about cross-bearing in ways that have very little to do with Jesus and His actual cross. They get a sore back and they say, this is my cross to bear. That is not the central idea here. When Jesus took up His cross, He was embracing public shame. Hebrews 12.2 For the joy that is set 
before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. That's what was going on. The Son of God, who had lived in eternal glory, was embracing public shame. You think about the things that make you ashamed. No one wants to wind up in public naked. And yet Jesus wound up splayed out, naked or half naked or mostly naked, in front of a watching world. Most of us, when we're sick, don't want a bunch of people to see us coughing and hacking. Jesus winds up in front of his mother, his followers, in crowds, heaving and gasping for breath. None of us want to be shamed for something we didn't do. No one wants to be called a racist when they aren't or slut-shamed when they've been virtuous. But Jesus died called a criminal. He died actually being... The, the godliest man who ever lived died having been charged with blasphemy. He embraced the shame of the false accusations that came against him for his teaching. He, he embraced that. And when we come to Christ, we're identifying with him. Even though people come up to us and go, why would you follow such a rigid and restrictive God? Why would you follow such a, a God with such backward morality? And we think, because he's the one who died for me. Because he's precious to me. Because I have no hope for my soul apart from him. And so we embrace the shame of following Jesus. We say with Paul, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Even though the world's going, you should be ashamed of believing that stuff. That stuff's abusive. That stuff's oppressive. That stuff will hurt people's souls. It'll crunch people's lives. No, no, no. We are unashamed of these things because we're happily identified with Jesus. Finally, we're to follow him. We're to follow him. We're to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Notice that, just notice these two words, follow him. Notice that believers don't look inwards to find their marching orders. They don't look inwards to find out who they are. They look outside of themselves to determine what they're to do and who they are. Who are you? I'm His. He's my Master. I'm following Him. In verse 35, we're called to lose our lives for, the, for His sake and His Gospel. Everything we do is for Him, even if it costs us everything. Did you hear him uh, later on in the passage I read? He calls us to be unashamed of him and his words. So we're not ashamed of what he says. You're like, I like going to church on Sundays just fine. I wouldn't want to bring a friend and have them hear what I actually believe. But no, we follow him. Not our inner desires. Not when those inner desires are against his word. We are following the one, the beautiful one, who serves others, washes feet, submits to God's natural world and God's biblical commands. If believers have an orientation, it is outward. It is towards Christ. We follow Him. So let me explain briefly. Let me just set up really briefly then I'm going to move into some application. Let me just set up expressive individualism and Christian discipleship side by side. Anyone still with me? 
Jeremy, you good? Okay, good. So just briefly, let me set these two beside each other. Expressive individualism says, express yourself no matter what desires you have within you. Express them. You do you. Christian discipleship says, whatever desires you have that are contrary to God's Word must be denied. Deny yourself. Now when I say deny yourself, I don't, say, I don't mean pretend you don't have certain temptations. Christians have those temptations. Christians can have all manner of temptations. But when we see them, we put them to death. We cut off our hands, gouge out our eyes. We run away from those things, not identify with them. Expressive individualism says, do not let anyone make you feel ashamed of the inner you, your inner desires. Christian discipleship says, do not be ashamed of following Jesus. That's your top priority. His words, His standards, His good news that exposes sin and saves sinners. Don't be ashamed of that. Expressive individualism says, follow your heart. You do you. Christian discipleship doesn't say you do you. It says, no, you follow me. You do me. This is the most merciful call in the world. Our choices lead us to all kinds of misery, but mercy, by mercy, Jesus calls us to follow Him. Beloved, I really think we need to get this straight. Can you imagine if Jesus walked up to some Pharisees and he said to those Pharisees, you know, you're whitewashed tombs. And the Pharisees says, that, that is not the best way to evangelize us. We had difficult upbringings with legalistic parents. And when you say those kind of scalding words, you really do not understand how to reach this generation. So Jesus goes back, has a prayer time, reorients his whole, his whole approach. No. And yet that's how often we are with this very movement. We're taking our cues for how to evangelize them from people who have no interest in being evangelized. And so we need to take our cues from God's Word and know that it is... See, here's the thing. Here's what's so difficult is the very thing that His mercy doesn't look like mercy. But we need to be merciful and put up with the shame that's heaped upon you when you're doing something that doesn't look merciful. So with that contrast between expressive individualism and biblical Christianity, clearly in our minds, I hope, let me walk through four ways we should respond to the LGBTQ movement. As believers have been called to flee sin, embrace shame, and follow Christ, we should compassionately expose LGBTQ sins. We should wisely reject an LGBTQ identity we should lovingly resist LGBTQ oppression, and we should eagerly show all LGBTQ people love. First, we should compassionately expose LGBTQ sins. We live in a world where many are believing that LGBTQ lifestyles will bring them satisfaction. In fact, what all LGBTQ sexual activity does goes painfully against the grain of nature. This is actually one of the central truths the Bible brings up when it deals with homosexual and transgender sins. It raises the issue that these sins are unnatural. Speaking of God's wrath on humanity, Paul says in Romans 1, for God gave them up to dishonorable passions, 
for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Notice Paul called sexual relations between a man and a woman natural, while lesbian homosexual passions were called unnatural. And like all things that go against the grain of nature, they bring their own consequences, not only eternally, but in this life. They receive in themselves, Paul said, the due penalty for their error. Jude strikes this same note when he says Sodom and Gomorrah, the two cities most closely identified with sexual perversion in the Bible, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued, note it, unnatural passions. When Paul speaks of men looking like men and women looking like women, he brings up nature again. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? We need to recognize that what's happening all around us in our culture is actually a revolt completely against the natural way things are designed. A natural realm and and way of designing things that even unbelievers can generally perceive and have through most of human history genuinely generally perceived it is interesting when the bible speaks of sexual identity and gender identity nature is invoked we know instinctively that men should dress like men we know instinctively that a man and woman's genitals fit together now i'm going to be graphic for a moment less graphic than i was with the college students because i know i got little ones here but I'm going, to be, I'm going to try to be graphic in a way that hits all the parents and young teens clearly and hopefully goes over some other people's heads in such a way that if you get asked questions later, you can say, I'll tell you later. And by later, you mean like a decade from now. <laughs> when a man sodomizes another man, it is a damaging event. It leads to lacerations, bleeding, It risks disease, and it leads to long-term fecal incontinence. You can't hold yourself anymore. You ruin your body. When a man and a woman come together in a natural way, it is safe. Everything is oiled like a well-oiled machine, and it's life-creating. One creates death. The other brings forth life. And I say these things because the entire LGBTQ movement has been brought to us through the Trojan horse of love. It's it's about love. They love each other. He loves him. She loves her. It's love, love, love. And, And raise your hands if you're against love. That's how so much of this has gotten so far. It's because no one wants to be against love. But no one wants to actually talk about what's actually happening. And what's actually happening is a public health crisis. Not love. Not love at all. When a man and a man come together, and here I'm sort of paraphrasing Jay Budachevsky. When a man and a man come together, the seed of life that comes out of a man 
is swallowed up in the bowels of defecation and death. It's not a natural action or desire. And the results of these unnatural desires being acted on are severe. The Vanderbilt University Medical Center reports men who have sex with men and gay men are at increased risk for certain types of chronic diseases, cancers, and mental health problems. Gay men are at risk for HIV, HPV, drug abuse, depression and anxiety, body image issues like anorexia and bulimia, and transgender people are susceptible to these very same diseases at very high rates and, as many of you are aware, higher suicide rates as well. Now, someone could say that all this depression and drug abuse and body image issues and suicidal thoughts are because preachers like you keep telling people these desires are unnatural. That would be one explanation. The other would be that when you go against nature, there are predictable results. If you fill your lungs with carbon dioxide instead of oxygen, there will be predictable results. If you eat gravel for breakfast instead of granola, there will be predictable results. And isn't it the height of compassion to keep people from predictable results of their actions? We lovingly warn, our medical professionals lovingly warn people about cigarettes and lung cancer. But many don't warn about the disease and depression that goes with sexual sin. Friends, and especially those of you who are attracted to an LGBTQ lifestyle, if you are starting to see that going down unnatural and harmful ways has hurt you, then maybe you can see it as a mercy, a compassionate mercy from God for him to send his son down from heaven and to say, follow me. Your way is leading you to something hard. The way of a transgressor is hard. The way of sin brings misery. Why don't you follow me? Do you see, this is gospel grace to say to someone, that's hurting you. Follow me. Deny yourself as a word of grace. Take up your cross and follow me. Brothers and sisters, we should speak compassionately about LGBTQ issues as the unnatural sins that they are. And we should invite unbelievers and Christians who struggle into the joy of denying self and following Jesus. Second, we should wisely reject an LGBTQ identity. There's a group in the church today, and honestly, I see this prevalently in the most conservative Christian colleges, or not prevalently, but I see it present in the student bodies of some of the most conservative Christian colleges you can imagine. There's a group in the church today who are saying gay people should embrace a traditional Christian sexual ethic. That's good. But also embrace a gay identity. These men and women would say sexual activity should only be within a heterosexual marriage. That's good. So far, so good. However, they add something. They think it is important that Christians who feel gay should identify as gay or lesbian. They argue that how you feel oriented inside should define your identity. I have two responses to that. First, I think that the inclination to identify your real self with your internal desires is shaped more by expressive individualism than by biblical faith. The reason this teaching has gotten so much traction in the church is because the church is so, is so infected with expressive individualism. 
But no one's going to come to the Bible and say, oh, the Bible taught me to identify myself according to my temptations or sins. No. And, and secondly, and this is not original to me, we would not do this with any other sin. I've struggled with anger as a Christian. Can you imagine if I introduced myself all the time? Hi, my name's Ryan and I'm an angry Christian. One preacher pointed out that we would not walk around after we are Christians and say, I'm a liar Christian. We're a porn-loving Christian. What would we do if someone said, I'm a racist? I mean, don't get me wrong, I do not practice racism, but in terms of my orientation, I prefer the company of white people. I feel white culture is better. Beloved, it sucks the wind out of me even to say that. And it should suck the wind out of us to say I'm a gay Christian. As Christians, our ultimate identity comes through who God made us. We are His creatures. The role God gives us, parents, children, brothers and sisters in the church, we can still fight many temptations. Real Christians can be tempted by homosexual desires and transgender confusion. Did anyone hear me say that? We are not above any kinds of temptations, but we do not label ourselves by those temptations. Our primary identity is not that we are in Christ. We come to Him, we follow Him. Sorry, our primary identity is that we are in Christ. We come to Him. We follow Him. We're not ashamed of Him. Two more points and then we'll close. Lovingly oppose LGBTQ oppression. Lovingly, we should oppose LGBTQ oppression. You know, it's easy to see the oppression in the past. It's easy looking back to see the American, evil of American slavery and human trafficking, and it indeed was evil. It's also see, easy to see oppression far away. The reports that have come out of North Korea remind us that we have many brothers and sisters who are imprisoned and being tortured during a time. It's harder to see oppression up close. But make no mistake, the LGBT community is deeply oppressive. Sorry, the LGBTQ agenda is deeply oppressive. Not every individual would be. But the agenda certainly is. For example, many Christians have come to the conviction, I'm one of them, that we should not call someone by their preferred pronouns. To call she a he or he a she breaks the ninth commandment which tells us not to bear false witness. But a Christian in New York today could be fined a quarter of a million dollars for not using someone's preferred pronouns. In 2017, an Ohio couple lost custody of their child when they refused to help them transition to the opposite sex. You tell your little son, no, you are a boy, and you're the enemy of the state? Across America, women are losing in women's sports as mediocre men declare themselves women and use their superior masculine speed, athleticism, and strength to dominate women's sports. They're actually eliminating women from many of the record books as men take all the women's records. Now maybe losing a gold medal shouldn't be considered oppression, but losing athletic scholarships to men, which is what's happening, means fewer women who can afford to go to college. In Canada, Bill C-4, passed a couple weeks ago, makes conversion therapy illegal. What's conversion therapy? Well, the law states that conversion therapy means a practice, treatment, or service 
designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to sex assigned to them to the person at birth, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior. I'll just tell you this, as a preacher, I want to reduce all kinds of sinful sexual attraction, including the ones listed there. And that now makes you an enemy of the state in Canada, and my experience after 20 years of being here is this nation's usually just about 10 years behind. My friend, that makes offering people the hope of the gospel illegal. Will this mean that a Christian preacher or Christian counselor who try to help people reject unnatural desires will be fined or imprisoned? Remains to be seen. But in Sweden in 2005, a pastor was sentenced to a month in prison for preaching on homosexuality. Beloved, we should be vocal, like Jesus, against this kind of evil. You hate oppression? You want to speak for justice? Here's a major issue in our day. But I want you to realize that resisting this oppression will probably not happen for most of us in some dramatic speech. It will come when you say no to the pride pin they're handing out at work. It'll come when you refuse to put your pronouns on your name tag. I love what Sharon James says. She goes, when I'm asked what are my pronouns, she says, I am a woman. In just a moment, I'm going to speak about personally loving LGBTQ people, but I want it to be clear. Speaking the gospel to public issues so that people are not bankrupt, bankrupted, robbed of scholarships, imprisoned for speaking the truth, or hindered from hearing the gospel is loving and compassionate as well. Finally, eagerly love LGBTQ people with the gospel. As Christians, we do not determine people's ultimate identity by what they desire. We understand that all people, no matter how sinful their desires may be, are made in the image of God. On top of that, the example of our Savior is that He draws near to sinful people. He was a friend of sinners. I'm well aware there's many who are listening to me right now who are tempted by the sins I'm talking about. There's many in this room who identify with those sins. We're delighted you're here. I'd love to get to know you more. The example of our Savior is that He draws near to sinful people. He was a friend of sinners. LGBTQ friends are sinners like all of us. So we should show kindness to LGBTQ friends and neighbors. We should have them into our homes, invite them to our churches, hold Bible studies with them. We should find ways to show mercy to those suffering with AIDS, depression, drug abuse. My old pastor in Toronto, Canada, used to walk into an area of town where many gay men live and express to them how much he longed for them to visit his church. We need more of that. Many of you are familiar with the story of Rosaria Butterfield, who was a lesbian university professor who was befriended by a pastor and his wife and over time led to the Lord. More of that, please, out of manual. Now I know that in many situations, your compassionate love and sharing of the gospel will not be met with open arms. Calling people to repentance can be called abusive these days. Speaking about God's standards can be called oppressive. Telling people that their only hope is in the cross has always seemed foolish to the world. But beloved, the world is terribly and demonically deceived. The world thinks cutting off a transgendered child's genitals is liberating. They think it's good parenting. 
That's, that's demented. It's demonic. It's abuse. The world may not love us, but we can love them even if they slander and misunderstand us. If you're maligned and reviled or even persecuted, you're in good company. They did that to Jesus and the prophets. Our job is not to control people's reactions to us. Our job is to love them. To show the love of Christ for sinners. The world we're living in is dominated by expressive individualism. This is just the latest version of human rebellion and sin. Expressive individualism says my identity, my authority come from my desires. Anything that gets in the way must go. Jesus presents another way. One that does not go against the grain of nature or the character of God. The call of Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Him. This call to flee sin and to embrace the shame the world will heap upon us as we follow Him is countercultural, but it's loving. When it comes to the LGBTQ movement, it means we must compassionately expose sin, wisely reject an LGBTQ identity, lovingly resist LGBTQ oppression, and show love and compassion for LGBTQ people. Why? Because we are a people blessed to hear the call of Jesus to deny ourselves, to take up our cross and to follow Him all the way to salvation. Let's pray. Father, I plead with you to make us faithful and loving. And we pray that you would fill these pews even, these seats even in the coming years with hundreds who have been immersed in this indoctrination, these lies, and who come to experience the freedom of the gospel. We pray you'd make us skilled to bring the gospel to them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.